Welcome to episode 30 of the Bulak podcast, coming to you from Rabat, Morocco. Uh, this is Ursula Lindsay, and with me is Marsha Links-Qualey. Hello! Uh, who, um, I'm happy you can join us, who I think has just emerged um, <laughs> from uh, the deep tunnel of final production of the, the last issue of Arab Lit Quarterly. Yes, of basically, was it six days sitting on Skype with the art director, <laughs> uh, you know, changing. No, look, there's an extra space on page 42. No, it's still there. Well, all I've seen is the cover, but it looks amazing. So he's, your art director did a really good job. Yes, he's fantastic. Uh, he contacted me after the first one came out in the fall and really threw himself into this project. Um, I, I, it's beautiful. Cool. Well, I can't wait to look at it. And I think what we'll do is um, maybe talk about some of the highlights of this new issue in our next episode. All right. Um, I am very much looking forward to getting my copy and uh, spending some time with it this weekend. Uh, and let me encourage all our listeners who haven't already subscribed to the Arab Lit Quarterly to do so now. And uh, I guess, yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to say it. I'll say it for okay, you. You, right. you. You guys really should. It looks amazing. The contributors look amazing. Um, and it just keeps getting better and better. But uh, what we are going to spend most of today's episode on uh, is uh, talking a bit about a probably Egypt's most famous contemporary author, Alaa Swani, and some of the troubles that he's in today, as well as um, I would say sort of the, tra the his trajectory as a public intellectual and writer, which is something that we both have sort of personally um, followed for, for a long time. And we're going to be talking about uh, Shakespeare in the Arabian Peninsula and uh, talking about uh, the art of uh, literary criticism these days. Um, so uh, why are we talking about Alaswani now? Uh, because he seems to have gotten into some legal trouble recently, although it's not seems clear. Is, seems is actually the operative word. So right. it started out with articles in the press uh, saying that there was a lawyer who is one of the lawyers who likes to file a lot of cases against well-known people. And in um, Egypt has a system where an individual attorney can bring a case and then it is either taken up by the prosecutor or not. This was this was how the case against uh, Ahmed Neji, for instance, started. There there was a, a long case against uh, Nawal al-Sadawi, who's um, a very uh, who is maybe the, then the second most famous uh, Egyptian writer um, living now. Actually, in this instance, it was a lawyer saying that he was filing a case and that he wanted it forwarded to a, a military trial, that it should be a military trial because Allah al-Aswani had insulted the military. Now, can you actually file... These cases have always been in civilian courts. Can you actually file, personally go and file a case that, that, that goes into a military court? This is unclear. Actually, the um, Arab Network for Human Rights Information put out a statement a few days ago saying, we would like some clarity. Can, in, can any individual now suggest a military trial against someone? Is that something that's possible? 
Well, I think you can suggest it if you're the kind of asshole lawyer who's running around <laughs> filing cases against artists uh, every other day for insulting this or that institution. It seems to me very likely that you're going to be the kind of person who's going to add as an addendum to the, you know, when you sort of announce this to the press that you think that they should also be uh, face a military trial. Whether that's, you know, going to happen or is like legally possible, although the, the boundaries of legality in Egypt these days are being stretched pretty far. Right. We recently had a military trial against publisher Khaled Lotfi, who was sentenced to five years for selling a book that was simultaneously incorrect, spreading lies, and uh, telling uh, telling military secrets. So, Which was a book with all of the information contained therein was sort of already public knowledge. And a Netflix show. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, so this issue with Alasmani is then this story was sort of picked up in the international press um, with, you know, I would say very superficial follow-up. So like the Guardian... Right, very uncritical report. Right. And so the Guardian published a piece and sort of saying, you know, Egyptian author faces military trial. Like if someone had done proper reporting, it would have been clear that that's not actually the case yet. Right. Uh, there there was a proper be. story in Reuters which said something like Ala Aswani fears there might be a military trial because he read some things in the Egyptian press. And there, they said, a military source said, if there's going to be a trial, there'll be a trial. Right, okay. Which thank was very you. helpful. Thank you, sir. <laughs> thank, you. thank you for clarifying that. Um, and, and the thing is, Aswani himself sort of posted about this on Facebook. Um, we've had trouble actually figuring out where he's living at the moment, but he seems to be outside of the country. He had a bunch of events in New York City, uh, so that's where he is currently. And which wouldn't be surprising. Um, I mean, so so whether this case is going to proceed against him or not, what's clear is that, you know, he is, you know, blacklisted in Egypt, sort of persona non grata, and also, like, increasingly himself in an openly dissident position vis-a-vis um, -vis this regime, whereas, like, the overwhelming majority of intellectuals and artists in Egypt he did, in 2013, support the overthrow of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, support the military, and I don't think speak out against uh, the massacre of civilian supporters of the Brotherhood that took place that summer. Right. So, like, but I think his case is interesting exactly for that reason. Um, and actually, what I'd like to do is actually step back and talk a little bit about you know, his career from the beginning, or at right. least... Let's from... go back to 2002. Yeah. So, I mean, do you remember when or how you met him or became aware of him? Um, well, it was about... he was. I mean, he was already a personality by 2003, 2004, because uh, the Yakubian was a pretty um, pretty big success early on in uh, among Egyptian readers. Uh, yeah. I can't remember. I couldn't remember actually off the top of my head when the book came out. I remember meeting him at a party in Cairo, and he was—he'd had a hit book, right? But he wasn't yet. Um, no, he was still sort of modest. Not modest. Okay, that's the wrong word. He was still a dentist writer, whereas now, I, does he still say he's a dentist? I don't know. I don't know. Wait, I'll get into the dentist side okay. of his of his persona because I actually went to him I, I, as a as a patient of his uh, to his to his dentist uh, office. Um, I would say he was always 
jovial. Like, I wouldn't say he was modest, per se. Like, I think he was already pretty, you know, pleased with this success. But he was always quite approachable. He wasn't, like, snobby when he got successful, you know? He was always quite friendly to people. Um, His manner was always quite open and so on. Uh, So, yeah. Although can be roused to anger. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But so yeah, he had the Akubian building hit, and I actually went, I re- actually went and because if this first story that I became aware of about him was so he'd had this hit novel in Egypt. It was a huge hit in Egypt in Arabic, right? Before it then went on to get translated into all these languages and, and made into a film, made into this blockbuster movie. Um, and it was based on this building in downtown Cairo that really exists, where he had a dentist office at one point. And then he was sued by the residents of that building. Do you remember? Right. Yes. For using the name of the building. And they said he'd based characters on them. Um, and uh, and so I remember going and finding the building in Cairo. And ah. sort of... We t- and with it, with actually with an Egyptian colleague, so because uh, my Arabic was not good enough at the time, and we like went up on the roof, and because you know there's characters who live on the roof mm-hmm. of the building, and talked to a few people, um, who were all kind of upset about the book but hadn't read it. Right. So that's the that's the that's the first thing I remember about him, and then the book just became this enormous. Runaway train. Yeah, this international success, like the book that everybody... So then I remember reading the book, of course. Um, and the book that everybody loved to hate, really, among uh, the Egyptian critical establishment. Yeah, if you want to sort of take a really contrarian position, then you can say that you liked the Akubian building. If you're exactly. in like, <laughs> yeah, I, if you're in like academic progressive circles, right? I re- I was in a room with Humphrey Davies once, uh, who is the translator of the Akubian building, and everybody else was taking the piss out of the book. And he, you know, he kind of threw up his hands at a certain point and said. Literature is a house of many rooms. Like, he's not saying this is, which some people do, and he's the next, uh, he's the heir to Naguib Mahfouz, he's the greatest living Egyptian novelist. No, he's not saying that, and certainly I'm not either. But, you know, that there's room for, you know, fun, plotty books as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the strength of the book is the plot. It's a book that, like, really moves. Mm -hmm. It's a book that has... um, a, uh, it's like well structured. All the pieces kind of really, really fit in with each other. Sometimes too much. Like that's the criticism of the book. I think this is a bit schematic. Right. It's, right. It's quite schematic. But right. And you know, like uh, you, it got a lot of he got a lot of credit for featuring a gay character. His depiction of that character is not particularly yeah progressive, <laughs> to say the least. I think. I mean, um, but it is this attempt to. It is certainly a book that yeah uses stereotypes as one of its schematics. Right. But it's this attempt to sort of show a global picture of Egyptian society. Some elements are stronger than others. The, like, young woman who has to go out and sort of work in shops and faces sexual harassment and so on. Mm -hmm. I thought that was sort of like, uh, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of writing about that kind of female working girl experience Mm -hmm. before. Uh, you know, the main story about the old male character who's sort of 
were meant to sympathize with. I didn't like him in the book or in the movie. No. Uh, and, you know, this sort of nostalgia for downtown Cairo, whatever. But it was, I think there's a reason it was a hit. You, like, you know, you wanted to read it to the end. Uh, it was very, like, referential to, like, issues affecting Egyptian society. And, and yeah, like... It was great that at this time when everybody's lamenting that nobody reads and nobody's interested in literature, like, it's good to have best-selling books. And right, and it, it certainly was a bestseller. I, I mean, I, th I think the part of the critical establishment's annoyance was how it was taken up in translation as the best of contemporary Egyptian literature when it's, you know, it's a, a pop bestseller novel. Yes, although I think... There is often this tendency to over over consider, I think, reception of or, or sort of hold works responsible for their reception in ways sure. that are not altogether fair. I mean, first of all, the reason the book was translated was just because it was a hit in Egypt right. and in Arabic, right? right? That was the main reason. It was a commercial success in the Arab world, and so therefore, you know, publishers thought there would be something there, right? And um, and, you know, to sort of then after it's become popular in the West, criticize it for, uh, I suppose, you know, being Orientalist or whatever. I mean, but it was a success in Egypt first. So then I'm not sure what Orientalist really means in this context. It just means like stereotypical. Well, it was stereotypical in its own context as well. Right. But in that case, then, I mean, like, what foreign what foreign interests is it furthering? That's what, you know, if if it's actually locally produced and locally popular, all it is is full of cliche, some cliches. Right. But cliches that made it popular because they resonated with people. Right. You know, the, the downtrodden uh, doorman's son who, like, can't get into the police academy because he doesn't have connections and therefore becomes... Uh, eventually a rat and can't get married and therefore becomes an extremist. Right. Like, that's a cliche, but it's not just a cliche imposed from the outside. It's actually a, a, a cliche, a narrative that is internally generated. Right. About a very sort of, again, schematic reading of, like, what drives people to radicalization. Right. I think the thing that you can... Certainly you cannot hold a book responsible for its reception. Uh, I think the thing that you can interrogate about its reception is the sort of laziness with which people assume that uh, because a book was translated, it's automatically high literature. I think, generally speaking, we, we associate translated literature with complicated literature, serious literature, unless it's like a Scandinavian noir um, murder mystery. Um, and that, you know, this is one book from Egypt, therefore it must be, it stands in for all of Egypt, rather than kind of trying to look at the context in which it exists. Yeah, I think reviewers who made comparisons to the Guide Mahfouz were, like, lazy and, yeah, and right. bad. I mean, there's an obvious comparison. I think he himself, like, the, the, the situating of the story in the building is very much a reference, I think, to Miramar. To, right, to Mahfouz's right. construction of a story in Alexandria that's set in this, like, um, uh, what's it called? A small hotel. So clearly he himself is sort of referencing Mahfouz, and he wants to do this kind of panoramic view of society through a contained space. 
but yes, like the reviewers, you know, I think there was a lot that was like superficial in the critical reception of the book. And again, it wasn't actually a very critical reception. They didn't talk about the literary merits of the book hardly at all. I think almost all the discourse around it was just about what, you know, you could learn about Egypt from this book, which, you know, you can't read the book as a kind of literal key to Egypt. It's a much more indirect key to Egypt. It tells you sort of some of the narratives in Egypt about itself. Right. But it's not right, like... Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I've been reading uh, a lot of reviews of Arabic literature over the course of the last 20 years, just to see the patterns. And, and they're overwhelmingly interested in the picture it paints about a society and whether it gets it right or whether it's too angry and what the politics are um, and very little interested in the craft of the book. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember seeing much at all about his technique. Right. And 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 that was sort of, you know, the, the, the technique I think is very effective, but it's not formally... Interesting. Particularly innovative. But but I also think there was this sort of like really condescending discourse about it. Like it's not literature because it's not so formally experimental. Like again, that's needlessly kind of right. well, I think elitist right. about sort the of... The Egyptian literary establishment had moved so far into... Because there was not this um, market-based, it matters what's popular, it matters what's readable, we're trying to make a bestseller, we're trying to be accessible. There was not this. So the Egyptian literary, literary kind of critical establishment had moved so far in this direction of writing for each other that what he did was in such a different space that it was, you know, kind of shocking. I, I think since then, a lot more people are moving between these spaces. A lot more people are interested in writing poppy literature for a wider audience. Right. I don't think somebody who writes uh, a basic, like, enjoyable sort of page turner needs to be put entirely on the defensive right. for, for doing right. that, right? right. right? Uh, especially when, you know, it, it catalyzed, like, big, you know, actual debates about some of the issues contained in the book. So anyway, he got super famous, and then he stayed, like you said, he was the dentist writer right, for, for quite some, some time. time. Yeah, um, I think it was sort of important to him to ha to to be a dentist because he would always talk about how it he would meet people that way and sort of not just be a writer, have this other sort of contact with society. So his dentist office was down like three minutes down the street from where I lived in Garden City. Right. And after we met, I went there at least once. I don't know. I guess I just thought it'd be a kick to have him be my Sounds dentist. Sounds like a kick. I guess I'm sad that I never thought yeah. that. <laughs> but so what I remember, though, so he had this, like, kind of big room with his dentist's chair and then, like, a couple chairs and a table, and he smoked in in his dentist office this like, doesn't actually while surprise acting me. as a dentist so he but he had this strange sort of like small literary salon slash dentist office right I, I the problem is I don't want to misremember it was so long ago but I kind of feel like a couple people came in and out and chatted with him during our <laughs> our session or like right before or right after and he would sort of like have coffee and smoke cigarettes and 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 then you know um 
do teeth cleanings in between. It was really bizarre. It was really funny. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Mm. And, you know, although you can't sort of talk with somebody, <laughs> you can't have a great conversation when you're at the dentist because you're, no. not, you're usually not able to speak. No, you can listen, though. <laughs> Maybe it's a good place to talk at people, the dentist. Try out ideas. Yeah. Have a good listener because they've got something in their mouth. I mean, but I always found him very likable. I have to say he has a big personality, but he's not a blowhard. Like, he's not... He does listen to people, I think, for the most part. Yes, but you don't want to be on the other side of his angry side. That's oh, all if, I'm saying. Oh, so have you been on the other side? I, I have. Oh. <laughs> it, very briefly in 2013 when I... Uh, well, I don't want to skip ahead. Okay, okay, so we'll, we'll get there. Um, yeah. So I have not been on his angry side. I also haven't been in touch with him for many years. But I did, um, at, at the point when we were sort of like the most uh, in touch, we had several meetings where um, he sort of asked me a lot of questions as part of a information gathering for his novel set in the States. Um what was Chicago. It Chicago. So uh, he kind of wanted to know about American college kids and like, I think recreational uses of drugs and because that features in the in right. the story. Yes. So I remember As does prostitution and all the things we Americans I did, love. Yeah. Well, I didn't. Uh, I, I I was no use uh, there. <laughs> uh, I do remember because I was in my early 20s then, mid-20s. So we had a couple sort of, we'd meet at Grumpy's downtown for coffee and he would have these questions. And I remember sort of like, you know, trying to give him some accurate information about these things without sort of like revealing too much about my personal life. Because right, I'm you didn't of, want to end up in the book. I didn't want to end up in the book. <laughs> I really didn't. And I was like, you know, 50% concerned that I might end up in the book. And I'm a pretty private person, so I didn't just want to, like, right. you know. So I kept it kind of general, but, you know, I had been to college in the States about five years before, I'm guessing, at that point. So, mm. you know, I, I had some topical information about the youth in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> so that's what I remember. I remember having these conversations. And he was always very, like, fun to talk to. Um, uh and I think I wrote a profile of him at some point. Everybody was writing a profile of him in those years. He was right. just so profiled. Right. And one thing, another thing I'll say for him is in all that time when he got so much public attention, like, there, there's that's that moment where, like, you know, you might fall into the trap of saying, you know, s stupid or superficial or cliched or self-aggrandizing or like that's that moment when you're just getting so much attention from the international media and also to like explain your country kind of. Right. I don't remember him falling into that trap particularly. Like he would talk about politics and he would talk about society, but he never, that I can remember, it was always pretty like reasonable, interesting stuff. It was uh. kind of the same stuff. He got very good at being interviewed and so I remember kind of seeing the same uh, quotes again and again. Right. I don't know. What do you think? At that point, yes. I mean, I, I might have a different impression now, but yes, at that point, I think so. And I don't know if that was the time. I think in the years leading up to Mubarak's fall is when he became this big public personality. Right. He wrote Chicago. 2006, he wrote, 2008, these years. He wrote that other book about the, the automobile club or something. That was maybe after 2011. Wasn't it? Mm, I think it was before. I thought it was before, but oh, maybe I'm wrong. Boy. I see. I didn't read a number of his books, to be honest. 
Um, I followed the dispute with Jonathan Wright during the translation of the Automobile Club, but then I didn't actually read the book in any form. Yeah, I think I picked up a couple of them. I think I picked up Chicago, but I I didn't I didn't follow through. For me, in a way, the the one that he got sort of the strongest, the one that held together the best, and and was was the Akubian Building. There was a reason that was his breakout. I remember reading his columns in the newspapers, and the, those were also then um, collected in uh, in volumes. And I, I also thought as like a public commentator. And again, we're going to get to the problematic right, part. Right, right. But you know, he had all those columns that would always end with like, democracy is the solution as a kind of rejoinder to Islam yeah, is the I solution. Think he was, yes. I think he was a pretty clear spoken, straightforward columnist. And he was like not, I mean, he was anti-Islamist, but not hysterically anti-Islamist and not anti-Islamist in the way that became an apologist for the regime. Like he was also right. critical of the Mubarak regime. Uh, and then for me personally, the high point of his, one of the high points that I sort of witnessed was when after 2011, uh, after Mubarak had fallen in those first couple months, he went on television and one of those TV right. talk shows that were so freewheeling then. And he gave Ahmed Shafiq, who was this, you know, total member of the former regime who'd been made prime minister in the transition he just gave him so much shit on live television that he re that Shafiq resigned the next day and that I remember just finding right. electrifying right I, I mean he I think he sort of said to me like you're you know you're how can you as a representative of this former regime like how can you possibly be in charge of a transitional government like you're just the wrong person to be doing this and demolished him right yes that was amazing. There were a lot of amazing moments in those months. That was one of the highlights. He was on television a lot, I think. He was very outspoken, and he was very good at television and at arguing with people. He was, like, very calm, very sort of, like, had a lot of authority and could, like, really get his point across. Right. So, anyway. Um, it's pretty uh, unflappable in a situation where I certainly would be flapped. Oh, yeah, I would be flat before I even got on yeah. to the top. I would just be, like, pouring sweat and, like, so upset at the person that I'm going to argue with. And, I've know. already staged the argument 300 times in right. my head. Right. So by the time I got there, I'd be incomprehensible. Right. No, he was, he, was, he was very good at it, and he was very supportive of the uprising from, I think, very early on. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was clearly in the sort of... Uh, you know, revolutionary camp mm -hmm. uh, politically afterwards. And, uh, but then, I, I mean, so, you know, to, to skip ahead to sort of the next big shift in Egyptian politics, so then 2013 comes along. Right. You know, the Brotherhood gets pushed out of power by the army after these massive protests, and that's where you got into an argument with him? Uh, yeah, I can't remember exactly which point, but he was... Uh, he was, you know, in, in this moment when so many uh, of the figures of of his generation, writers, intelligentsia, were supportive of giving a very broad remit to the army in that moment uh, that included killing a lot of people. He, he, you know, was supportive of, of the army in that moment. And I wrote something about it later and... He was very angry that I brought it back up. Did he respond to you directly? Well, I think he said, uh, 
I, I think he sent an email to his agent who forwarded it to me. There were a lot of all caps. So that was such a hard moment because basically everyone was disappointing. So many personal relationships were like broken in yeah. that moment. Like between people who were saying this is unacceptable, don't you see where it's going? And people were saying this is absolutely necessary, this right. violence. Right. And and we need it to safeguard the state and uh you know, it's the it's the Islamist fault basically. Uh, I saw recently um, a friend re- reviewed very positively here in a Moroccan magazine his latest uh, book, which is... The So-Called Republic, yeah. Yeah, it's not called... The French title something else, oh. like I Ran Towards the Nile. Oh, okay. But it's this book about post-revolutionary yes. Egypt and everything that's gone wrong. Right. And so, you know, he got this very nice review about, you know, his condemnation, about all these things. And of course... Me having lived through that moment where he was not on that side at that moment, my first thought was like, oh, she doesn't know like where he stood then. And I sort of feel like it belongs in the review. I mean, it deserves to be mentioned. The thing is, because we kind of lived through it and we took sides, you can never, you always remember that about everybody right? back then. And... And not that we're, I mean, not that I'm in any case saying that everybody needs to be pinned to every opinion that they held at every moment. We're all wrong sometimes. No, and I also think I have tried very hard, although I believe, you know, that that it was a tragedy politically, that it was a human rights uh, crime. There's not too much gray room, but, but the reasons for which people... I've tried very hard to understand why so many people went along with it or supported it or thought it was necessary or were so scared or so angry uh, that they, you know, did support this. And, uh, you know, I've, I have I think, yes, one can be, people can be wrong. And also maybe there's something about this being a participant in that conflict as opposed to being an outside observer. Yeah, right. Although I have Egyptian friends who were on the right side of things sure, too. Like, right. so that's not the only explanation. But I just know so many people who are smart, well-meaning people and still took a position that I find very difficult to reconcile with. And then I think, like... Of these folks, like, Alaswani was not a sort of rabid, you know, he wasn't saying, like, yeah, the more you kill of them, the better, <laughs> kind of crap, which a bunch right, of other people, people were. were. Right. And uh, I think he was sort of more of the, like, it's unfortunately necessary at this time kind of argument. And I think he also came around sooner rather than later right. to starting to say, okay, like, that was necessary, but this isn't necessary. Whoa, guys, now, you know, what are you doing now? Right. And he became critical of the army pretty quickly on, which is in line with his general politics. And I, and I do think I, I, one can't, you, you can't hold against people forever, especially if they are, if they change their views. I think what's hard is that a lot of people even who have changed their views on what happened and on the military have not had any sort of public reckoning with that. They right. haven't said sort of I was I was wrong back right, then. Right, right. Or <laughs> they've said maybe like I was fooled. You right. know. I haven't heard like did Sanala Ibrahim ever come out and talk about that moment? No. I mean not that I know of. Right. I don't know. That was another heartbreaker for me. I think about that conversation all the time, interviewing him a, a month or two that after was the, the top massacre. heartbreaker for me. That was really the core heartbreaker. 
But his view is so, you know, nationalist, basically. Right. That, I think that's, that was... what, that's what I think a lot of people had to go back and reimagine. Yeah. So, but so that's the thing is, like, I don't think it's, I think it's one thing to say, don't hold me forever, you know, to that position. My position has evolved. But to get angry if you're reminded of that, like, if you were public intellectual, especially someone who is so to the degree he 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 was and is such a public intellectual like he wasn't just a writer he wrote all the time for the press right then you have to be prepared for that to be reminded of that position like you can't just ignore it yeah well and then so much has happened since then and and he has definitely taken an oppositional a fully oppositional stance at this point. Yeah. I mean, my personal view of him is that, like, he has done more good than bad by far, both for, like, the field of literature in Egypt and for general public discourse in Egypt. Like, I think overall, on balance, and, like, you know, people are not ever all one or the sure, other. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, and cor- I think corny novels that have some stereotypes can be a positive thing, too. Well, and also, like... You know, he is very committed to 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 writing, to sort of like to his to his role as a writer, to his role as sort of a leader of literary salons. Right. Mm-hmm. He's very actually encouraging of 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 other writers. Um, um, I know. I think uh, overall his presence and 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 also his you know politically, like despite this blind spot, which is so widely shared in right. two thousand thirteen. Um, and, and, and what's happening to him now is so much part of this, like, incredible campaign to drive all creative people, it seems like, out of Egypt. Yeah, which is a, a terrible shame. I mean, I saw it began, so he started by, for instance, tweeting he was held at the airport for two, three hours and questioned, and I think these sort of regime microaggressions, if you want to call them that, have gradually increased until, uh, there were, was all this reportage about potential trial against him. It, there doesn't seem to be any evidence at this point that, that an, any actual military case has been filed. But it is a, it is certainly a threat, and particularly coming so close after Khaled Lotfi's military trial. Surely they can. Well, and then there's um, the two Egyptian actors who just yes. recently... Um, it's uh, Khaled Abunaga and... Uh, Amir, apologies, but two prominent Egyptian actors, and we'll we'll can link to the show notes, uh, who were just I think actually sentenced in absentia, yeah, and for insulting the military. Crazy propaganda has appeared um, in in state funded publications. There's one where they're both shirtless and, and obviously photoshopped together in this oh, image to make that. them look like. There are two gay men hanging out shirtless. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so there's this kind of queer men against our uh, patriotic regime propaganda that I was not expecting. Well, yeah, so there's, I mean, it's, you know, there's this campaign to basically drive all all talented uh, people in, in the country out. I mean, you're really ending up with sort of diaspora of, of, of talented and... Which just makes people, it forces them into dissent. If anything, it encourages their dissent. Like, you have nothing to lose at that point when you're outside of the country. Um, right. 
it's just it's just so utterly sad and i and i and i fear you know so this time we're talking you know off of this report in which in the end i don't think he's going to he's facing charges but i wouldn't be surprised at all if in the future they it's just a matter of time it's just a matter of time before they do actually sentence him also to something in absentia or like bring more charges against him because it's just the logic of the whole thing like there's nothing he can say that they won't get upset about Right. No, I think now that we're down, sliding down this hill, it's like that poor Egyptian. It's like that poor Egyptian singer who was already sued for making a joke about the Nile right. water, mm-hmm. and then she, like, you know, and good for her that she won't shut up. And then she made another quip about how, like, you can't talk about anything in Egypt these days, and they sued right. her again. <laughs> and it's just mind-boggling. Yeah, I'm uh, the space for for saying things, which. Oh, it never felt enormous, but it did feel like doable. You had some elbow room. Of course, there was the moment in 2011 when it felt like you could just say anything. Yeah. Uh, but the space has just shrunk to a size of a pea. Yeah. Well, on that note... On that note, on things you can and cannot say, <laughs> um, we were also going to talk about a book I recently enjoyed, Shakespeare on the Arabian Peninsula by Catherine Hennessy. And it's an overview of, of Shakespeare productions by and large in the somewhat in the 20th century, by and large in the 21st century, happening in countries, in, in GCC countries, countries in the Arabian Peninsula. And she does not talk about the famed production of Hamlet that's supposed to have taken place in 1598 off the coast of what's now Yemen, which I always find entertaining. But um, one of the fir- very first uh, productions of Hamlet supposedly took place. Wait, put on by by English people who were okay. on the ship. <laughs> um, but so she uh, in this book is talking about. Was that really loud? Me pulling out the paper. That's all right. All right. Okay. That's sh- a very literary sound effect. <laughs> we don't need to cut that out. Um, she is talking about theater uh, in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different modes in this book, both aesthetic theater and uh, and theater for, for the sake of community. And why is Shakespeare important? Uh, she, she talks about it most in the context of Kuwait as the more censorious the context became. Um, and, and we've talked before on, on Bulak about the problems that Kuwaiti authors have been facing um, in in the last fifteen years, with with censorship, uh, uh, but the more censorious, the more the more Shakespeare. So it's the twenty first century, post two thousand five, mostly that she's seen an explosion of Shakespeare productions, um, and it, she talks about several of the writers talk about Shakespeare as sort of armor against censorship. So here's Shakespeare. Um, he's this global figure. He seems anodyne. It's like it's like staging an ancient opera. It's like staging uh, some something that is not going to be at all critical in in your. Uh, so you can have your royalty stage Shakespeare. It's got this cultural cachet of being uh, a, an amazing global art. And and you can worry you, you don't worry about that you, like you'd worry about a local contemporary uh, production that it's really going to be uh, critical or worrisome or um, 
I don't know if they, uh, if some people in the in the censor establishment don't realize how much sex there is in uh, in Shakespeare. Are the plays performed uh, without any cuts, or do they cut out? Anything? Oh well, they, she talks a lot about how censor. I think one of the fascinating things about this is how how she talks about. How, how much information she gets about the censorship process because often it's such a black box like what is censored people don't you know people often don't want to talk about it because right. you don't want to piss off the censor's office then they're it's going to get even worse so but she talks a lot to people who brought production Shakespeare productions so she's talking both about university productions of Shakespeare at places like NYU Abu Dhabi about international troops that come from London or from India and they do productions in Gulf countries. And then she's talking also about Shakespearean works. And this was the most interesting to me in an artistic sense, Shakespearean works that have been adapted to comment on, on a local context. Um, so she's talking about all three of those things. But the one that's the, the most interesting from the censorship perspective is people who've come in from a global context because then they they do feel they've gone back to their country so they do feel free to talk about what exactly what their original product or product okay <laughs> now there <laughs> then shakespeare as a commodity becomes a part of this as well but what their original play text was and what they had to what was shocking locally what had to be cut what had to be censored who is doing who in the in the um in the chain is doing the censoring a lot of times it's the promoter like the the person in the in Dubai or whoever who brought in this Shakespeare company from London is as self censoring is self censoring preemptively. preemptively saying okay let's make sure none of the men and women touch each other during the uh, okay if there's too much you know don't do this don't do that that there's a lot of preemptive censoring and there's you know people who oh this won an award in this uh, this hip hop adaptation of, of of Shakespeare won an award. In London, let's bring it here as, you know, we bring award winners to to our international community here in uh, in Abu Dhabi. And then, you know, the the wording changes. You, you know, there there she she maybe has a slightly different opinion of some of them. It, there were inventive changes to adapt to the censors. For instance, slut was changed to um something about scuttlebutt about this you know you, you know she's accused of being a slut versus the rhyme becomes something about scuttlebutt and she she lauds this as being an inventive way of getting around the censorship which maybe it was but it sounds dumb to me you know scuttlebutt does not have the same right so there's a production in english already and they're right. changing the terms to make them less explicit yes yes there is so there's a there's a passive and an active theater that she's also talking about. Many of these are just large spectacles. They're intended to be, they're in old-fashioned costumes. They're not intended to be critical. These are, one woman said, mine is a pure, non-politicized Shakespeare. Uh, so they're bringing them in just to make money off of, uh, of this. Well, that sounds super negative, but certainly, <laughs> but certainly, but certainly playhouses in Europe put on quote unquote sure. traditional, yes, yeah. you know, not every production of Shakespeare has to be updated to make it sort of, you know, I don't know, criticize Trump or whatever, right? Like we don't know. So no. you can, you can, 
no, it's, it's a right. valid artistic undertaking sure. to yeah. also just have a, a traditional production of Midsummer Night's Dream, where the fairies are just fairies and. It's just totally. a, a comedy. Yes, don't, absolutely. Don't you think? Yes, I mean, yes, yes, I mean I what I'm more concerned, what I think is harder to justify is is changing the language, is is cutting things out. That, I think, is uh, always problematic. Yeah, well, I, I think they, they face uh, a lot of censorship issues. Um, I was also highly entertained by, you know, a production has to... Uh, okay, here you are, you're here for this production, now you have to quickly stage a production for all the local princesses and have uh, a production just for them, now go, you know. So mm. all the additional also hoops and requirements and bureaucratic uh, things that have to be walked through and, and also the entirely always shifting red lines. I didn't even I wasn't even aware that there was sort of so many Shakespeare productions going on in GCC countries that there was a book worth of things to talk about. I, I think particularly in uh was it two thousand six, whatever the Shakespeare four hundred year was, there was a there were a very large number of productions. And I've i I've seen talk about a large number of Shakespeare productions. Um in the UAE, in in Kuwait, I th I think as as one of the directors says, and 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 some of them are adapted brilliantly to both talk about a local context and to and to squeeze around these issues of censorship. I mean, it does offer armor against um, the censor's gaze. There, the one that I was most entertained by, and and. and most interested in was called Hamlet, Get Out of My Head. And it, she, uh, she watched two productions of, of, that were video recorded. One happened at the Riyadh Book Fair in 2014. And one happened at the Coral Beach Resort in Jeddah in 2016, which I, uh, seems like a hilarious place to uh, stage a play, but wonderful. And in it, the, it's sort of a one-man show of it's not it's it's the guy he he's an extra in the production and he uh he wants to be hamlet he wants to be given a chance to get in but the director won't let him speak and uh during the course of the production the the lights are shut off the the power is shut off to his mic he's silenced through it and the director becomes a sort of stand-in for you know the the Saudi establishment, and there's the VIPs who get to sit in the front row, and um, there's a tension between the VIPs in the front row and everybody else who's in the back, and and he uses lines from Hamlet, but making it about the Saudi context of staging Hamlet, and the the thing that really resonated with um, the Saad al collection that we read is that. So she reports that in watching the video of the 2014 production, people treated it like theater. Okay, they sat there, they watched it as theater, even though he was constantly talking to the audience because he's trying to get the audience. It's like the one-man show is he, him complaining to the audience about the, the director, about not being able to be participate in Hamlet, about having the sound cut, the the, mm. uh, the lights cut. And so people in at the Riyadh Book Fair just observed this and maybe they said oh this was technically very interesting as as Sadala when was complained about but she said in 2000 in the 2016 production you can hear people 
speaking back to him. You can hear people really responding to it as if these questions are not rhetorical questions, but are questions that really demand an answer from the audience. So well, that's cool. Yeah, so I found that to be... I, all of these productions all seem cut off. Uh, yes, all, all theater is sort of an, uh, uh, is currently in small islands, uh, you know, around the world. Theater is sort of, but these are all such tiny. Like, uh, it only occurs at the British Embassy, um, or it it only occurs at NYU Abu Dhabi. And who, you know, who gets to go in and see that, and who doesn't get to go in and see that. Right. Well, I mean, there's a couple things going on. I mean, so like you said, our previous episode, which is about the Syrian playwright Saad Alawanous, like he talks about the marginalization of theater in the region, and the medium had like a very brief heyday, and then both because of regimes' interests in like controlling public space and controlling culture and controlling any exactly these kinds of things where like a group of people kind of like interacts and mm. a conversation is started. And I think because of the sort of very quick spread of other forms of media, like TV and radio, which were easier to control, uh, theater is just not a very popular medium. Although there are, I mean, obviously in the big Arab cities, there are a fair number of of theaters. And, but then in the Gulf in particular, it seems to be part of this trend of kind of importing high-end international cultural products as part of, you know, a modernization project, a kind of branding exercise. Uh, yeah, and Global it, Shakespeare comes with the uh, Abu Dhabi Louvre and the right. NYU Abu Dhabi and the... Right, exactly. With all these museums, with all these universities, but with all these this kind of international culture that very purposely... Uh, so you're not creating... You're not putting... You're not... You don't have public cultural policies that are that are really devised to encourage the emergence of a local cultural scene where, you know... I mean, maybe they're saying we're, we're, we're staging these plays now to sort of provide people with models so that, like, you know, we can produce our own plays, you know. I, I don't know. That may be part of the argument, right? Is like we're here, we're acquiring all this international cultural, uh, to have this sort of cultural capital available so that, like, this our younger generation of artists can be inspired by it or respond to it or, you know, perhaps. Well, I think theater in general is a much dicier area than, you know, should you even let your child go on the stage? Isn't it sort of like prostitution? Is this, um, aren't the men and women up there touching and kissing each other? I think right. for the Gulf in particular. Uh, there's all this baggage with the medium itself. Right. Although it's not that there's like no forms of traditional folkloric theater. It was more like shadow theater and puppet theater. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and then, of course, there you know there there has been acting in the region for quite some time, like throughout the twentieth century, really. But um, well, she she talked about in Yemen, in particular, has the longest engagement with mm. with Shakespeare, and then of course with with also um, local theater writing. She's translated some play texts by uh, Wajdi Lahdal, who is a Yemeni playwright and who writes 
wonderful, sharp, humorous, critical, satiric contemporary theater. Uh, so Yemen in particular, of, of all these countries, the one, the one that's different in every single possible way hmm. is, is Yemen. Well, and so this book is being, and it's being put out by Palgrave Macmillan, but it's sort of an academic book. Yeah, it's an academic book, but um, I've read, uh, you know, this is not the first time I've read her academic work. She's a very um, mm, uh, experiential academic writer. A lot of this is about, uh, it's it's more like actually a nonfiction popular nonfiction than academic writing. It's about people she met in the theater. It's about stories about the theater. There's there's not much theory that she's putting into it. It's a story about the staging of Shakespeare in the GCC countries, the kind of community that builds, what it can do, what it can't do, when it works as sort of this Shakespeare washing and when it's really a, a space of really interesting artistic creative possibilities. And does she sort of review the productions a little bit? She does. She reviews the... She's kind of like a... This is much more theater criticism, I think, than mm. theater criticism and an overview of of what's going on than some sort of dense academic theorizing about what, what the meaning of it is. What One of the things I really like is that she does not distinguish between high and low, uh, uh, in you know, foreigner and local... Uh, you, you know, she, it's, it's not uh, authentic and inauthentic. All of it is authentic. All of it's real. A community production or a production that comes from London or a production only done by a Qataris, they're all interesting to her. Mm, I think that's a neat approach. Yeah. I think it makes more sense than, than trying to categorize too much. Um, well, so that, this book sounds quite interesting. Um, and that sort of leads into the last thing that I just wanted to touch upon um, today, which is an essay about criticism that sort of struck me um, quite strongly. Uh, and that came out in Harper's, I think. It's in the April issue, I think. Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is Christian Lawrenson's essay. Well, gosh, is it called Like This or Die? I think it's called Like This or Die, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's all about the field of literary criticism and book reviewing. Um, and it sort of fits into a tradition of looking critically at literary criticism in the press. So it's specifically interested in like the, the really traditional in a magazine, in a newspaper function of the book review. And, and, and But what I found interesting is that it talks about the way basically online media is changing the book review and how there's been this um, renewed interest in book reviews, except that they're not really book reviews anymore. They're just book recommendations and book lists. Right. It's part of the positivity movement. That we're right. talking only about things that we're recommending that you purchase as a commodity. Right, and that the function of the book reviewer is now to just help orient the, you know, savvy consumer in this sea of options towards the books that are like a perfect match for him or her. Right, you are going to be the kind of person who eats Kellogg's cereal and enjoys... Um, 
I don't know, Jonathan Franzen. Right, and that this is what, what people want from book reviews. This is how to, this is the kind of book, it's not even a review, book coverage that generates uh, traffic. So even the New York Times, he has several crit critical examples of the New York Times, and the one I remember is sort of, uh, what is it? It's like warm books on a cold day or cold <laughs> books on a warm day. Like, and, and they're just these lists organized according to these very right. and actually, random... I was, I was very upset about that one. How could you not have Ibrahim Akuni's desert books uh, if you're looking for uh, hot books on a cold day? So, oh, we've talked so disappointed. about... We've talked about book lists a bit. Like, I mean, I completely... I, I was very persuaded by his analysis of what's going on and I, and and I found it very useful in in sort of understanding what the what the market driver is for this kind of book coverage. I do think there is a sort of you know genuine pleasure and interest that people always have in making lists in a game-like way. Right. Like we all yeah, enjoy think, that. Right. But I I think one of the things that's so different about book coverage now than 20 years ago is you know very specifically which stories people are visiting, how much time they're spending on them, uh, what makes, what draw, draws, kind of things draw people to your site. Also, the topics that people are generally searching online, you can match your coverage in your book publication to mm. what kinds of books people are searching for right now. Uh, so there, it's it becomes so attuned to that. Right. Although, I mean, that whole model in which content is tailored for viral engagement mm. is literally producing some of the worst tendencies on the internet, right? Right. Like, we know that people respond to certain kinds of content that does not mean in any way that that content is good. Sure. Right. Like that's pretty there's evidence of that, right? In fact, there's certain kinds of really crappy content that generates quote unquote a lot of engagement and you know uh Right, but engagement means advertising revenue. Right. And right. Advertising revenue means you get to pay your staff at the end of the week. So right. it, it becomes a very tight circle. No, I, I, I understand, although um, at the same time that this is happening, it seems to me that there's quite a few um, magazines and uh, this whole stable of the quote-unquote new small magazines. Uh, of which I have one. Oh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 um, and which I read, and one of which I write for, and that I think are you know great, and and that. Um, are very committed to the to to the long in-depth you know serious critical evaluation i mean like all of my favorite publications basically have real book reviews right yeah right? somebody asked me about writing a sort of a standard book um recommend book recommendation type review for arab mm. quarterly and i was like why those things are everywhere no thanks yeah i mean i think what what we enjoy both as readers and as writers is the essay around a book. Right. I mean, for me, something like the London Review of Books, for example, or the New York Review of Books, but these are sort of have always been epitomes of that genre where you are 
the the article itself is of interest regardless of the book. Exactly. It the is article a piece of must writing. be a beautiful piece of writing. A beautiful piece of cultural engagement in and of itself, even if you because most people are not gonna read that book. It it and it seems to me much more interesting to read something like that than to read just a list of like little micro descriptions of Most books. Most of which people have not actually you're, read. You're the gonna books like putting this, on those lists. You're gonna like that. It's just filler. It's just mm. mental filler. Uh, and whereas uh, you know an essay that says you know this book does this or doesn't do this, and I liked it because of this or I hated it because of that. Lawrence's essay is also very much in favor of like writing negatively about things sometimes. Of, right, as, of, as everybody knows we are as well. I mean, we are theoretically, but probably we don't write that many negative reviews. I think even... I don't write that many negative reviews, but I have enjoyed writing negative reviews. I think there's something very... Um, vivifying about like really having an argument with yeah. and and actually there's a level of respect for a, a book that you engage with you know that you really have an argument with I mean I wouldn't just write a takedown of any that's the other thing is what I don't like is the very superficial takedown that's not again that's not based on like a critical engagement that's not based on saying this is why this book doesn't work and here is why mm. you know um but that's just sort of or this and yeah that's another thing he points to is like so there's two things that sort of drive traffic supposedly is lists and then profiling authors as if they're celebrities or sort of making it about the person who wrote the book right which is become because that but the only problem being that like writers are not celebrities and they're neither as like attractive or often as interesting as people who are in other creative fields like the most interesting thing they do is sit down at their desk and write eight hours a day so it's well not, it's also a sort of a distorting factor and it's I think it's always been a distorting factor with Arabic literature because there's such an like an intense interest in the person's story which mm. is you know part of the the sort of Anglophone interest in Noelle Sadawi is in her personal story because she does make a compelling personal story. So then, you know, that writing gets gets put forward. Except that, okay, just to take her as an example, like one of the things that would be really interesting about telling Noelle Sadawi's personal story would be to get into the incredibly complex, like very dark side of her personality. She was quoted in an interview recently, and I would oh, have gosh. to I would have to go and verify the accuracy of this interview because you need to check when people say these things and they're quoted like what was the context or right. whatever. But she was quoted saying that she saw Hillary Clinton handing out dollars in Tahrir Square. In Tahrir Square, <laughs> I saw you know, as well. she has been you know. So there is a side to her for all the sort of impressiveness of her work. There are incoherences and grave lapses in judgment and uh, self-aggrandizement. Exploitation the, of employees' work. Also, like, in her treatment of women who, or in her discussion of women who are religious and who wear the veil, condescension of a kind, an aggressivity of a kind that is 
really difficult to reconcile with feminist principles. I mean, there are so many complicated things about her character. If you want to write about how her biography intertwines with her writing, well, that, write okay, that essay. Yes, okay. The pitch that Ursula just made is very interesting. <laughs> you, you know, so I think sometimes you can you, want, you can write an interesting, you need room and you need a lot of research, you know, uh, well, you need time, and and yes. if if so many pieces are being paid fifty dollars or a hundred dollars to to write a piece, spending forty hours on research right. becomes insane. Right. No, absolutely. So that's the other part of the equation is the publications that we mentioned before. I mean, some of them, like uh, I think, pay not amazingly, but the ones that commission real book reviews, lengthy essays or whatever, you're still not, not frankly, getting paid for your the amount of time you're probably making less than minimum wage, but at least you're getting paid enough that because you love doing it, you can actually put all the time in to read all the works, read all the stuff about the author, read other critical work, and then sit down and write for days something good, you know? So... Yeah, I mean, I, I think biography has its place. What, what doesn't have, what's not interesting to me are these, you know, capsule interviews with authors about, I don't know, like what kind of hair product they use practically <laughs> these days. You know what I mean? I mean, who cares? <laughs> right. You know, either do a real interview. But also the thing is, I feel like most writers say the most interesting things they have to say in their work. Right. I'm yeah. Rarely no, um, interested in an interview with a with an author. I mean, if I really liked the work, then I'm interested enough because of the work to sort of maybe want to hear more from the person. But so so anyway, I thought uh, this. And then I, what? I, the other thing I loved about this piece was its takedown of TV criticism, which I am like so on board with. I I, I am I am so mystified by the practice of writing recaps of television episodes. It, it just right. Well, I, I think it's this kind of consumer based. I what do I watch tonight on Netflix? Tell me in a hundred words or less. No, but we're talking about the ones where it's written the next day. Yeah, and it's more like I want to keep on. I want to. It's like a conversation, I guess, about a TV show you had, you watched. So you, the same way you'd want to talk about it with your friends, except the writer like recaps in excruciating detail everything that happened on the episode, and then makes these very. Because I've read some of them just, you know, out of curiosity, and then often make these just completely uninteresting observations about the characters and, you know, these really minute... And this is where it gets into his distinction between fans and critics. Mm -hmm. So I think that is of interest to fans, Right. right? If you're a fan of a TV show, just like Well, it becomes part of the public conversation around the show. Right, right. So the same way you'd like talk about the game the next day and just go over it all in detail, like you want to go over your favorite show in detail. It's just so far from reviewing in in any way that I think that's the thing. I'm not I'm not interested in fandom. I've never, I think, had that kind of a relationship to a TV show. That you've been a fan of it? No, that I've wanted to read like that kind of... Oh. You know, day after uh, book report, right? I mean, so I, I think uh, I mean now even very highbrow publications have TV reviewers. Like the New Yorker has a TV reviewer whose articles I generally enjoy reading. She doesn't talk about formal stuff much, though. Mm. 
it's usually more about the content of shows and whether they work or not, which is fine. It's, it is reviewing. Uh, I just... Well, I'm one of those people who only looks for TV reviews if I'm like, what do I watch? I don't know. So I am a very kind of consumer-oriented TV show, TV reviewer. I enjoy a good review of anything, mm. of theater, of ballet, which I never go to see, of like, I love movie reviews. Like, I enjoy the review as of um, any good review I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. I like hearing people talk about art or think about, out loud about right, art right. Uh, and explain why they liked or, or disliked something. Uh, but I do think it's not, well, I think we're completely in agreement on this. Like there's no point in just sort of cheerleading for stuff or that's a different thing than what we're interested in. Right. And I, I think one of the really problematic parts uh, of that aspect of it is now I get at least one message a day from something's called white hat marketing and what they do is they want you to insert a cheerleading story about uh, their, uh, whatever it is, their book, their, their film, their this, their that, uh, into, your, into your website that, that looks seamless to, to outside people. And I've spoken, be, because I'm so baffled by it, like why would anybody do this, you know? What's a, promotion? Well, I know why the brand would do it. I don't know why somebody like me would take it. Wouldn't they pay you? Well, yes, of course they pay you. <laughs> but so I asked, who, right. who would do this? And some people said, well, okay, I did it because it seemed like easy money. But then I right. felt dirty afterwards and I felt like I betrayed my readers. You, you asked this on Twitter or something? I did, I did. Some people raised their hand and were like, well, they, I did it for money, Marsha. It's they about do, money. It's the thing that you forget all about. <laughs> well, they direct messaged me. They didn't like publicly say, yes, I betrayed my readership. Well, I suppose, was it something that they thought they they kind of liked already or they or it was just completely... Uh, well, they, okay, they contact you like this. They say, we're r- willing to write content for your uh, your website. Wowzers. Um, we've read it. We're fans. We'd like to uh, do a guest post and we'll pay you for it. And, you know, it could so it sound... Would be, it would be clearly labeled guest post or it would be labeled guest post as small as possible. Um, well, In invisible it, might, ink. it might be labeled guest post, but for instance... Yeah. What does that? What does that even mean? Does that uh, you know if um, Nadia Renem writes writes a post on Arablet? Well, she's now she's the Algeria editor, but so anybody you know if you wrote a post on Arablet, that would be a guest post. But I right, you didn't pay me to put it there. <laughs> right. No, that's a perfect example. That's that's the way the market wants to drive. And the thing is, in the traditional book review section, there were the ads and there were the reviews and they were right next to each other. It's just now there's a kind of blurring. I mean, and frankly, you know, there were probably are always tensions between those two sides of the business. I don't know what it's like to run a book review section, but I can only imagine that, you know, right. you're, it's not like, yes. you know. Well, certainly there are many more reviews of the large, big corporate, you know, the big five publications right. versus small small independent publishers books i'm sure there are obviously all kinds of things going on but yes this is much more 
this is trying to pass off, this is trying to make you, to take your capital as a reviewer and use it for promotional purposes without being altogether clear about it. Right. Which is literally something I feel like I've seen as in the premise in like a sci-fi book set in the future is how like people's ability to recommend uh, music and stuff will be part of a kind of market and that the companies will buy recommenders, influencers. I mean, well, that's already do, happening. Right? Yeah, except that all people, I think all the big influencers are, you know, sort of influencing people on what makeup to buy. There's no big book influencers yet. Maybe the... I, well, there's, there's no big no, Arabic Arab lit book influencers. Yeah. There's a, there's a market for you. <laughs> you need to start doing, you know, what these YouTube videos where you just speak to camera very exuberantly and sort of talk about recommend a book. I don't like cameras. Yeah, yeah, me neither. I'm describing something I've literally never seen. Right. I'm just making up what an influencer is. I think it's like a very enthusiastic twenty year old. Oh, there's definitely all kinds of. Makeup influencers, yes. Yeah. But but there are also people contacting me on a nearly da- daily basis about placing... Content. Content. It's usually... And I, you know, I always write them back sort of, oh, really? Well, can I hear your ideas on uh, a well-researched piece of, uh, that has something to do with Arabic literature and translation, please? Uh-huh. And they will write back like... Um, uh, the history of classical Arabic literature, you know, something they found on but Wikipedia. But what are they trying to promote? What well, then book? they'll somehow work there. I don't know. I never. Is it, a, is it a book that they want to promote? I don't, I really, I've never engaged with them beyond a few sh- sort of confrontational emails, passive aggressive. What a great way to spend your time. <laughs> passive aggressive email exchanges with like dodgy content <laughs> promoters. It's fun. <laughs> It it takes your mind off your like ten hour production design. Yes, exactly. Days. <laughs> Wait, no, that's still not italicized. Ah. <laughs> All right, I think we should end there. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it was great talking as always. Yes, lovely talking to you as well. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Bye bye. Bye everyone. Bye.